Lord, as we talk about Palm Sunday and Hosanna's this morning, I pray that your spirit makes Jesus clearer in our minds and more precious. In Jesus' name, amen. We will look at some Palm Sunday texts this morning, but before we do, I want to talk about uh, General Douglas MacArthur. If you guys have been around for a while, I've actually made reference to him before along some of the same line, but this doesn't appear at first glance perhaps to be a direct connection, but the similarities similarities I hope you'll see are, are numerous indeed. Let me just tell you the story of Douglas MacArthur, my version, my short uh, short version. This guy is arguably, kind of like a Winston Churchill, he is arguably one of the most important historic figures of the last 100 years. Uh, part of that is because of his military campaigns. Uh, another part, though, is actually towards the end of his life, uh, sort of post-military, which I'll mention here in a minute. He lived 1880 to 1964. His life was not only tied up in the military all his life, his father was a general in the army as well, uh, but MacArthur's life was also intertwined with the Philippines, the Philippine Islands, all his life as well. Um, he was uh, first in his class at West Point. I think he graduated in 1903. At the same time, his father came back to witness his graduation, <clears throat> came back from the Philippines, his father, General Arthur MacArthur, and he had been in the Philippines to fight the Spanish to free the Philippines, and then he become the military governor of the Philippines, Douglas's father. Comes back, witnesses Douglas's graduation from West Point, first in his class. His first assignment is to the Philippines with the Army Corps of Engineers. So his dad had just come back from the Philippines and he takes off. During this period that he spent in the Philippines originally, he felt like partly because he, with his father, came back and toured Asia, he felt like his life was tied up in the Philippines. Now, let's see, he was back again in the Philippines in 1928 to 30. He does various things at various times. He's there again in 35. The Philippines were scheduled for um, liberation. They'd be an independent nation in 1946, and so he returned there in 1935 at their request to help them prepare for this full independence. <clears throat> he had gained notoriety. Let me read you a quote from a biographer here. Uh, in World War I, MacArthur was a character, you know, like most guys maybe in the army who rise to ranks, a, a bit full of himself on one hand, but he was a genuine article on the other. Listen to what one biographer says about him. In World War I, the First World War gave Douglas MacArthur his first real measure of fame. Quickly promoted to Brigadier General, he helped lead the Rainbow Division, which he had helped create out of National Guard units before the war, through the thick of the fighting in France, with a flamboyant, romantic style matched only by real feats of courage on the battlefield, MacArthur became the most decorated American soldier of the war. So on one hand, he, he was a guy really given to uh, romance in the old sense, uh, that he was a gentleman and a romantic view of life, of courage and character. This was really the, the stuff of which he was made, and it, and it came out in his deeds, not just in what he talked about. When he went to the Philippines in 35, if you know your history, in this process of basically helping the Philippines develop an army, 
course, 1941 came along. And immediately after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, December 7, 1941, the next day they attacked the Philippines. The Philippine Army at this point, I think it numbered like 180,000, but two-thirds of that were new recruits who literally, they didn't have uniforms, they had never trained, they had never drilled. So when the Japanese invaded the Philippines, they routed this army. There were at least 12,000 American soldiers there, but they were primarily folks that were helping the Philippine army come along. It wasn't an American force that was supposed to be large enough to actually fight a battle for them. So when the Japanese landed on the Philippines, they just went right through it, and they decimated the Philippine army, and the Philippine army, what was left of it, and the Americans retreated to what's called the Bataan Peninsula. The, the Battle of Bataan, or the Death March from Bataan, is famous in history because the Japanese forced a Philippine and American soldiers to march without food or water from the Bataan Peninsula up to these camps. And of course, without food or water, they were many, many, many died along the way, and those who couldn't were beheaded and shot along the road on this death march. When Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, saw what was going on, he told MacArthur, you are to leave the Philippines, you're to resettle in Australia, you're going to run the Pacific War from Australia. His biographer says here, although it ran counter to his notion of a soldier's duty, MacArthur left his men facing sure destruction, comforted only by, be, by the belief that he might lead an army back to rescue them. For the next three years, the world watched as his personal quest of, I shall return, became almost synonymous with the war in the Pacific. When MacArthur left, he was compelled to leave. He was under orders by the president to leave. He told the Philippine people, and he told the American soldiers that were left there with them, I will return. Basically, hang on, whatever happens, be assured I will return. From January 1942, when he left, through 1944, MacArthur worked to keep his word. And then he did keep his word when he waded onto the shore at Leyte in the Philippines in October of 1944. Uh, it's recorded that this battle in the Bay of Leyte was the biggest naval battle in history. But they were determined to liberate the Philippines, and the Philippines were a strategic point along the way of overcoming the Japanese army. Then in September, almost a year later, but in September, or excuse me, 1944, yes, September 1945, it was Douglas MacArthur who sat on the USS Missouri to accept the surrender of the Japanese government. After the surrender, it was MacArthur who was named the Supreme Allied Commander over the forces that occupied Japan. And so for five and a half years after the surrender of Japan, it was Douglas MacArthur who oversaw the rebuilding, the reorganization, and the administration of justice in Japan. <clears throat> and what I'd said earlier about <clears throat> one of the most important figures of the last century, it is actually for this last large duty of his life that it's considered probably his most significant uh, Japan owes, in no small measure, its success, its, frankly, its miraculous rebuilding after World War II to the administration of Douglas MacArthur. The, the culture and the nation was reorganized under his supreme 
command. And uh, hard to imagine how long it would have taken Japan to rebuild uh, otherwise than for the forces and the men and the money and the leadership of MacArthur to get Japan back on its feet. So, here's this story. Douglas MacArthur, this decorated general, is sent to the Philippines to help them prepare for full liberty, full independence. This initial mission appears to be cut short, prematurely, when he is routed off the island and forced to relocate to Australia. But he makes a promise to the men he left behind and to the Philippine people. He said, I will return. You guys hang on because I'm making this promise, I will return. Those three words, I shall return, gave American soldiers left in the Philippines hope. They gave the Philippine people hope. In fact, the Philippine people were hanging their hopes on Douglas MacArthur and that three-word promise, I shall return. They knew, even when they couldn't see it, and the Philippines were decimated by the Japanese, decimated, but they knew that even though they couldn't see him and they couldn't hear from him, they knew they had a, a powerful ally that was outside their field of view who had made them a promise that he was going to come back one day and liberate them. And that promise, in those three brief words, I shall return, that kept hope alive in the Philippines until he kept his word and came back. This is a, it's a great story. Uh, it's a great time. He was a great guy, and it's with that as a backdrop that I want to talk about Palm Sunday today. The vantage I want to look at Palm Sunday is not to see Palm Sunday as an end in itself, a great day, certainly, but like MacArthur, it, it appears to be this brief victory followed by what looks like a terrible defeat, but it's really a precursor. It's really a, an I shall return promise, that is, Palm Sunday, of a return trip, of a victorious re-entry into this world. I think I say this every year. If I could pick one day in history to go back and live in, it would probably be Palm Sunday. And this Hosanna, this is such a great song. I'm so thrilled we started with it. The picture of Christ riding on that donkey up into Jerusalem, crowds lining the street, waving those palm branches. Now, you know, for us today... We feel a little silly, adults especially, when we get, you know, we do this, uh and we feel a little embarrassed, you know, a little silly. But on Palm Sunday, these were Jewish folks occupied by a foreign aggressor. And they had these great scriptures that talked about this powerful ruler, this commander of an army from God that would rout their oppressors and would bring in liberty and freedom. And when they cried out, Hosanna, God save us now, they weren't embarrassed. They were crying out their hopes that in Jesus, this, this, fo- this person that m- many of these folks, not all, were pinning their hopes on like the Filipino people did MacArthur, that he was it. So when they saw him riding up on that little donkey and they were waving those palm branches, There was no embarrassment to it. They were waving what they understood would be their victorious general who was going to come in and liberate their lives. No embarrassment to it whatsoever. The trouble with Palm Sunday, of course, is this, that it's kind of the first element in Passion Week. 
And when we celebrate Palm Sunday, it could feel like a bit of a hollow celebration, right? Because we know what happens the rest of this week in history. And the crowds are kind of fickle. And we've seen this as we've studied John's Gospel, right? That we've got these competing voices in the crowds Jesus addresses. Many believe, John 7 told us, but many don't. And certainly the Pharisees and the leaders don't. competing voices. And of course, many of the voices here today, maybe some of them are the same ones who within the week cry out with the Pharisees, what? Not Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but crucify him. So viewed from the rest of the week, Palm Sunday could ring a little hollow, maybe. But as we look at it today, I want to look at it as a promise of things to come. Not a a hollow victory, which is really foreshadows a defeat, but a promise of something to come. Like MacArthur's, I shall return. If you've got your Bibles and you want to, feel free to turn to Matthew 21 or Luke 19. I'm going to be starting with Matthew 21. I do want to read these texts. By the way... These texts, Matthew 21, if you remember, Jesus and his followers have been in Bethany. And in the topography of Palestine, if you've got, uh, for your benefit, if I'm facing north and Jerusalem is here, and you remember it's surrounded by a valley, the Kidron Valley, and you come down, you go up to the Mount of Olives, and you go down again towards the Jordan. Bethany's down here towards the Jordan. So they've been in the town of Bethany. They've been visiting their friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And so they've left Bethany. They've got to come up over the Mount of Olives. They've got to come back down into the valley. And then they're going to come up the the, uh, Mount Zion, up around till they get to the Temple Mount area. So this is the course they're walking. Bethpage, we're actually not sure where Bethpage is. It's thought that it might be on the east side or it might be on the west side of the Mount of Olives. Not sure. Uh, Matthew 21, 1 through 9. When they had approached Jerusalem and come to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Now, This is parenthetical. This is Matthew's editorial insert into the story. This took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, and actually this is a quote both from Isaiah 62.11 and Zechariah 9.9. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. He's gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went, did just as Jesus directed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees, spreading them in the road. And multitudes going before him, and those who followed after were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And the picture is this. Jesus and his disciples with a crowd from Bethany are coming from the east. People from Jerusalem are coming out from the west. They meet together on the road and this forms the parade that Jesus is then riding through. 
And this is when the crowds are crying, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, two weeks ago when we were in John 7, we talked about the Feast of Tabernacles or ingathering. And we said, when Jesus stands up and says, is any man thirsty? That this followed the reading of Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is exactly what the crowds are chanting here on Palm Sunday. Psalm 118, verse 24 through 26, This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save. Hebrew is Hosanna. Save now, or Lord, save. We beseech you, send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Those words were chanted at the temple when Jesus stood up and said, Come to me if you're thirsty. And they're cried out by the crowd on Palm Sunday when he comes in. Addressed to him. The son of David. This is the heir of David. This is the king, the descendant of David that Israel had waited for. Now, so far, everything's good. There's glory. There's joy. There's victory. Jesus is finally being welcomed in a large sense into Jerusalem. You remember, he's been an itinerant preacher, north in Galilee, south in Jerusalem. Some people like him, some don't. There's a variety of opinions. But here, boy, things look great. They're calling him Messiah. And this parade route, when people laid their garments down, this is welcoming a king. And we think of donkey as unkingly, but it's not necessarily... Kings and king's sons rode donkeys also. uh, Horses were generally used for war. So donkeys, this wasn't a, a, a particularly humbling thing at all. Kings rode donkeys too. So not a problem there at all. This is a good thing. Looks good. But of course, we know the rest of the story. And it's, it's not as good, it's not as full as we'd like. And we can go to Luke 19 to get filled in a little bit more fully on some other elements of this Palm Sunday. For instance, Luke 19 at 39 and 40, some of the Pharisees and the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Hey, get them to stop this Hosanna stuff. This son of David. Blessed is he, you, Jesus, who comes in the name of the Lord. He said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Here are these guys in the crowd. They don't want to hear this Hosanna stuff. Jesus... This is blasphemy. You get them to stop. Jesus says, sorry. Verse 41. So there's antagonism in these crowds, actually. But more than that. Verse 41. When he approached, he saw the city and he wept over it. He said, if you had known in this day, this Palm Sunday, even you, Jerusalem, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. The day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you. They'll surround you. They'll hem you in on every side. They'll level you to the ground. Your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus knew, even in the midst of these ringing hosannas, that there was a hollow tone to the cry and that the reception would be brief indeed. He looked past this acceptance, this welcome, to his own rejection and then to the destruction of Jerusalem, which would take place within the lifetime of most of those who were present to say, Hosanna this day. 
You remember, Jesus is crucified roughly in 30 A.D., and in 70 A.D., Titus levels Jerusalem. Now, Luke makes it plain to us that Jesus was not surprised by the rejection that occurs within the week, but the Scriptures made this clear, too. Let me read to you from Daniel 9, and by the way, this is one of the most remarkable prophecies in all of the Bible. In Daniel 9, uh, John Walvoord calls, this is the key to understanding prophecy, and I would agree with that. Daniel 9, it's also one of the reasons why many liberal commentators do not accept Daniel as legitimate, that is, as written by Daniel the captive in Babylon in the 500 B.C. era. Rather, they believe it was written post-captivity uh, in the Maccabean period. They believe it because its description is too singularly precise for them to believe this was predicted beforehand. In Daniel 9, verse 24, Daniel's having a vision. He's talked to by an angel. And the angel tells him, 70 weeks are determined for your people. And I'm, I'm uh, going through this passage bit by bit. I'm not reading all of it. 70 periods of seven, Daniel's told, are appointed for your people, the Jews. By the way, I don't know if it's available online, but we have a teaching. I've taught through Daniel before. There's a teaching on this that develops this issue about the timeline related in Daniel 9. You, you can certainly check it out from the CDs if you'd like to. Verse 25, You are to know and discern, Daniel, that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... There's going to be a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. You remember the Babylonians destroyed it in 586 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar leveled it. Temple's gone. Jerusalem's raised. So when there's a, an order, a decree given to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, it's going to be a period of seven weeks and 62 weeks. It's going to be a period of seven and 62, 69 periods of seven. The best understanding for this is each seven represents seven years. <clears throat> It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, verse 26, after the 62 weeks, after the 62 periods of seven, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. After, we could say, generally, after 483 years from the time a decree is given to rebuild Jerusalem, Messiah the Prince will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now you can read uh, one of the better known books on this subject is called uh, The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson. Some of his methodology is critiqued today. His book was written a um, hundred years ago or so. He believed that he could prove the point that from the day that Artaxerxes in Nehemiah uh, 2 verses 1 through 8 that from the day he gave the decree that Jerusalem, not the temple, but the city, the, the temple was already being rebuilt under Ezra, that from the decree that Artaxerxes gave in Nehemiah 2 to rebuild the city of Jerusalem to the day Jesus rode in was exactly 483 years of 360-day years. Prophetically, you can see this in both Testaments. Uh, when the Scripture is talking about years related to prophecy, it's 360, not 365 Day years. So, whether this is exact or not, it sure looks pretty precise that 
Daniel said that from this period till the Messiah comes, about 483 years, the Messiah is going to appear, but he'll be cut off. And he'll have nothing. And then beyond that, this prince who is going to follow him, in this case it's understood to be the Romans, they'll destroy the city. That's exactly what Jesus said in Luke 19. And Jesus knows Daniel. And Jesus understands that he will be cut off, Messiah the Prince will be cut off and have nothing before this week is out. Besides Daniel, Daniel 9 is not that well read or or understood by most Christians, but think too of, of just passages like Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or Isaiah 53, uh, We didn't esteem him, he was stricken by God. Uh, Better known passages about this suffering servant God would send to die for the sins of his people. And in Isaiah, you see both the coming conquering king, but you also see the suffering servant. So all I'm getting at is here, when Jesus rides in on that Palm Sunday, he knows that on one hand, as great as it is, it's short-lived and it's temporary and it's not... It's not the acceptance and the welcome that he knows is coming. That he is the Messiah that's the suffering servant. He must first deal with our sins. In fact, the Daniel 9 passage talks about that. That this period of time God set up would finish sin. It would seal up transgression and sin. So Jesus isn't taken in by the Hosannas. He's not fooled that this is really his victory march. In that sense, and that's the sense I want to see Palm Sunday today, Palm Sunday, though, is a promise of another coming to Jerusalem. It's a precursor, if you will. It's an I shall return statement. I'm going to do this again, but it's going to look a little different. And Jesus knows about these passages, too, when he rides into Jerusalem. Zechariah 14 This is graphic, and uh, Zechariah gets these end-time prophecies. Uh, Most prophecies have not been fulfilled. In Zechariah 14, God speaks, and he says, I'm going to gather all the nations against Jerusalem. They're going to be battling against Jerusalem. The city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. It's going to be bad. This has not happened. This has not happened. Then, verse 3, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day, his feet, whose feet? The Lord's feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. This has not happened. Then, skipping down to verse 5, the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. God predicts in Zechariah that a future time that has not yet happened, Jerusalem, the nations of the earth, will be gathered against Israel and against Jerusalem. And you can read about this in Revelation as well. And when all looks darkest, Zechariah says God will fight for Israel. And God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ will stand again where? On the Mount of Olives. This This little mount, you know, the the mountains in Israel aren't big by North American standard. This little hill 
This is where he's coming back. This little hill that he rode over on that little donkey, he's coming back to, Zechariah says, to fight for Israel. And when he comes back, Zechariah says, he'll be bringing all his holy ones with him. Where is he coming? Same place he came on Palm Sunday, Mount of Olives. It's going to look a little different. But he's bringing his holy ones with him. He brought his disciples with him on Palm Sunday. Remember the crowds that are with him? They're not all unbelievers. Many of them believed him and they're following him. He brought his followers with him on Palm Sunday. Zechariah says he's bringing his followers with him when he comes back again. By the way, in Acts 1, I won't read this, but when Jesus leaves planet Earth physically after his resurrection and the 40 days he appeared to his followers, he leaves from where? From the Mount of Olives. He takes his disciples out, he goes to the Mount of Olives, and he's received physically into heaven. A cloud receives him out of sight. His followers, the disciples are standing their mouths probably open, looking. And these angels appear to them and they say, Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. Mount of Olives, he left. They say he's coming back. Same way. Where did he leave from? Mount of Olives. Where is he coming back to? Mount of Olives. He left physically. He's coming back physically. He left into a cloud of glory. The cloud is not understood to be white billowy atmospheric clouds but the cloud of glory from heaven and he's coming back in the glory of heaven to the Mount of Olives. And forgive me, I'm reading through these texts. I want you to get the picture. Scripture paints it more graphically than I can. Revelation 19 follows up on the same Zechariah passage when it says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war, like MacArthur coming back to the Philippines. He's a warrior this time. His eyes are a flame of fire upon his head, many diadems. I don't know if you remember the picture of MacArthur uh, wading onto the beach at Lady. He's got his allied commander cap on and his sunglasses. Well, Jesus is wearing the crowns of his victory when he comes back. He has a name written which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. It's a bloody red garment, that of a warrior. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following with him on white horses. Just like Zechariah, this host from heaven is coming with him. Now, I'm going to read 2 Thessalonians in a minute. I believe this host is composed of two different groups. One is angels. The other part of this host is, I would argue, is you and me. And it's other believers, and probably from both the Old and the New Testaments, it's those folks who have joined him in heaven are coming back with him. So that when you read Zechariah 14 or Revelation 19, the host of heaven coming with him are his followers they're his disciples it's my understanding that the church doesn't witness his return from earth we witness it as participants we're not along the road on the mount of olives waving palm branches we're on white horses riding down from heaven with him in his glory to the mount of olives second thessalonians 1 says it this way The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. 
He will be dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. So, Palm Sunday, it's this mini mock-up, if you will, of Jesus' greater return victory ride into Jerusalem. The first one, Palm Sunday, goes over Mount of Olives on a little donkey with his followers waving, being welcomed into the city. And he goes in and he says, I know this isn't the real deal. Zechariah, Revelation say, just like Acts 1, he's coming back. And he's coming back so similar in one hand, same place, with his followers, but everything's different this time. MacArthur was chased off the Philippine Islands, as it were, but when he comes back, he's doing the chasing. He's bringing a victorious army with him, and he's routing the enemy. And when Jesus comes back, same place, Mount of Olives, with his followers, but this time it's in flaming glory on a war horse with his followers not walking behind him, but riding these horses with him in the glory of heaven, coming back to take control of the earth. Paul tells Titus in Titus 2, he gives him a framework to see life on this earth through. And it's kind of related to this Palm Sunday and this thought about the return of Christ. This is what he says. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men and instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, instead to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, this time we've got on planet Earth. And while we do, this is what we do, we're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Do you get that? You see, we've got this time on earth. It's between Palm Sunday and Jesus' second coming. And while we're here, the parade, that that first short parade, it's over, but while we're here, we're supposed to live righteously and godly in this present age, but it's with this attitude. We're looking for this blessed hope this appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. St. Patrick's Day was last week. I didn't go to the parade. I'm not a big parade fan. My mom loved parades. She never missed one of these things. And she'd drag us when we were kids to them. But you know, my mom would make sure she got a good seat at the parade too. She would have one of us drive her downtown. She'd park the car at a prime spot the day before, and then we'd go home. So we didn't have to get there early to have a good seat. We just came, we picked up the car where we left it the day before because she wanted to see that parade. And you know how this is at a parade when you, as a spectator, what do you do? You go and you find your spot on the street. You know the parade course. So you go find your spot, and then you wait. And you know that typically, you know where it's starting from, and you'll see some activity 
You'll see people going, cars driving. Maybe you see the top of a float or something. Or maybe you'll hear a, a squawking bagpipe as somebody's warming up. Or, you know, the band, maybe they're tuning or whatever. But you hear this noise down the street from the direction, you know, the parade's coming. And so, you know what you'll do? You're standing there. You know it's going to come right in front of you. But every once in a while, you, keep, you look that way, don't you? Because you know the parade's coming, and you know it's from that direction. And so, you're looking towards the parade. And this is exactly what Paul says we're supposed to be doing. There's a parade coming. And it's Jesus' glorious return. And we're supposed to be like, on one hand, spectators. That we know where the parade's coming from. And we get little glimpses of seeing it kind of getting ready. And so we're looking that direction as spectators. On the other hand, this is a parade you and I are are invited to participate in. Because, as I understand it, I'm not going into these other prophetic issues related to the rapture of the church and otherwise. But the folks that are with Jesus on white horses, these holy ones coming with him in his glory, they're those who have believed. They're believers. That means they're, they're you and me. You and I missed this first warm-up parade going into Jerusalem. But you're invited to participate in the full-blown, victorious parade version that's coming. And the invitations go like this. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Because it's those who've entrusted themselves to him that will be with him in heaven and returning to planet earth with him in his glory. We don't have to worry about not having been there 2,000 years ago to wave those palm branches. Because in this case, like a good movie, the sequel is better than the original. The sequel's better. And the best is yet to come. And we're supposed to be, on one hand, looking for, on the parade route, looking for His glorious appearing. And on the other hand, with this, to me, this incredible promise, there's many things I look forward to about eternity. This is one of them. You know, in this parade, in this victory ride in the glory of heaven, from heaven to earth, we won't have any embarrassment left. You know, I think we'll just be hollering, and we'll be, you know, we'll be whooping, and uh, we'll see Christ in this glory, and, and he'll be leading us with him, and he'll share that with us, and it won't matter that we weren't there. 2,000 years ago, because the best thing, the best one, is still to come. Let's pray. Lord, I am so glad that the fact of your entrance into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, and more than that, Lord, your death on the cross and your resurrection and your return to heaven, Lord, all promised in the scriptures that the those promises validated in your first coming, Lord, in your humiliation, in your sin-bearing role, in your gentle, quiet ride, so to speak, into Jerusalem, Lord, they give us all the more ability to believe, Lord, that your promises for the future will just as certainly be fulfilled. Lord, I think of a human figure like Douglas MacArthur 
named Supreme Allied Commander, this guy who kept his word, he came back and he redeemed those under captivity in the Philippines. Lord, what a a great story to remind us that Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus, your beloved Son, your Supreme Commander, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is yet to ride back in His glory to liberate, Lord, not only Jerusalem and Israel, but planet Earth from sin and death. Father, thank You that in accepting Jesus' invitation to life, we become part of this heavenly parade, this victory ride that is yet to come. God, give us a sense of Your glory. Give us an apprehension, a hopeful longing for that day when we join your Son in glory. God, give us a taste for heaven that makes the things of this earth uh, not as tasty, not as glorious, not as full, simply because we know the best is yet to come. Lord, we long for, we say with Paul, Maranatha, we cry out with the crowds, Hosanna, God save. Even so, Lord Jesus, come in your glory. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.